Welcome to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Accelerate your success with insights from a multidisciplinary team of healthcare experts as they discuss an array of topics. These timely discussions can help you better navigate the challenges of running your ambulatory care practice. Here is your host. Hello, this is Graham Brown, Senior Vice President with NextGen Healthcare and a Principal with the NextGen Advisors. On today's podcast, I'll have two experts joining me to delve into a recent request New York State submitted to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which seeks flexibility to spend Medicaid dollars from CMS in new, innovative ways. The request, if approved, would mean the federal secretary waives certain requirements state must adhere to in operating their Medicaid programs. Thus, this request is referred to after its section in regulation and is called a 1115 demonstration waiver. New York and many other states have received approval from HHS over the past decades to fund and test demonstration initiatives aimed at improving access, quality, technology use, and program models for Medicaid beneficiaries. With that brief background, I'm pleased to welcome today's guests. Carl Coyle is the Chief Executive Officer of Liberty Resources Incorporated, a community-based agency centered in Syracuse, New York, with a broad range of programs and services in behavioral health, physical health, and targeted services for children, families, and individuals with disabilities and school-based programs across New York State, in New Jersey, and in Texas. Joshua Rubin is a principal with Health Management Associates, a consultancy and advisory company with offices across the United States. Josh is a policy expert with deep knowledge and expertise in Medicaid, especially in New York. Prior to his current role, Josh was an assistant commissioner with New York City's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Welcome, Carl and Josh. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure being here this morning, Graham. So I did a brief introduction to our topic today, but Josh, I'd appreciate you walking our listeners through some of the details of the New York State Waiver Amendment proposal. First of all, what's the waiver trying to achieve? Sure thing. Thank you, Graham. Um, The waiver has one overarching goal uh, that the state has identified, to reduce health disparities, advance health equity, and support the delivery of social care. Um, And when they say social care, I think it's important that we pause for a moment and recognize that the state like many states around the country, is acknowledging the importance of social services to people's healthcare outcomes. The way the state intends to do this, one is by building a more resilient, more flexible healthcare delivery system, really transforming the service delivery system in part to integrate those social services. There's a a second um, strategy around supportive housing and transitional housing, and not housing itself, but housing supports, things that help people avoid homelessness and keep people housed. Um, redesigning the strength of the, the service system to promote quality, to advance health equity, and frankly, to recover from the pandemic. And then the fourth strategy is really around a statewide digital health and telehealth infrastructure. That's great. Thanks, Josh. New York has had Medicaid redesign waivers in place since 1997. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how the focus of this one is different from what the state was trying to accomplish in previous waiver amendments. Sure. So the waiver that is being proposed is an extension of our existing waiver, which has been in place since 1997. Originally, it was called the Partnership Plan. Um, More recently, it's been called the Medicaid Redesign Team Waiver. The current waiver has done a lot of things that have transformed the healthcare delivery system, the Medicaid delivery system here in New York. 
They have moved most Medicaid recipients in New York into managed care models. They have built health and recovery plans, special needs plans for people with serious mental illness and substantial substance use disorders. They have established home and community-based services here in New York. Those are all things that need to be maintained if we're going to continue to provide services like we do now. Recently, New York completed what was called a DISRIP waiver, Delivery System Reform Incentive Payment Program waiver. DISRIP was really about that first strategy of the new waiver, that healthcare system transformation piece. What we are seeing with this waiver is a, a really a growing understanding that the pandemic that we are, we are uh, experiencing has really exacerbated a, a stressed system and has really brought to light some, some growth grotesque health inequities that have been there the whole time, but didn't really get a lot of focus, a lot of attention. This waiver, in order to address those, is going to introduce two new sort of platform entities into the service delivery system in New York. HEROES, health equity regional organizations, are essentially planning entities, bringing together broad groups of stakeholders, assessing, for example, the housing needs in a particular community, and then really developing plans about what are the target populations, what are the program models, what are the performance metrics um, that contracts should address uh, in that region. The second are called SDHN, Social Determinant of Health Networks. These are, are backbone organizations that enable social services providers, many of whom are very small, historically under-resourced, with very limited interaction with the healthcare delivery system, and interfacing with the healthcare delivery system is extremely complicated. Um, and so those backbone organizations provide some infrastructure that enables these small organizations to interface with the healthcare delivery system and to provide some of those social services that Medicaid policymakers have come to understand are so important. Ultimately, the goal is to get the healthcare delivery system, the behavioral healthcare delivery system, the social services system, housing systems, and other systems all working together, all working collaboratively to advance the, the health of the community in an equity-focused way to really do something to address some of those historical inequities that continue to plague our healthcare delivery system. That's great. That's a really excellent uh, baseline introduction here. I thank you for that. Uh, Carl, I'd love to get your perspective on a few of the elements Josh just detailed. Uh, the first stated goal here is around uh, New York State focusing on integrating the delivery system to reduce health disparities and improve health equity. Talk a little bit about why you think that's necessary. Well, first of all, the notion, the primary notion that integration is a building block of this proposal is absolutely critical. And when we talk about improving health equity, my perspective on that is that we want to also improve health outcomes in an equitable way. I think that's a more specific way to uh, state the objectives and the goals of this initiative. Certainly COVID-19 pandemic highlighted and in many cases exacerbated the impact of longstanding health disparities based on race, ethnicity, disability, age, and particularly socioeconomic status. In the U.S., we have a healthcare delivery system that has been historically structured to address illness and disease burden with patients going to hospitals or clinics when care is needed instead of embracing meaningful patient-centered care that's proactive and preventative in nature. These systems, and therefore the services for individuals, have historically been siloed, Graham. This proposal integrates both primary care, long-term care, behavioral health, and the SDOH systems that Josh just alluded to into a more comprehensive and connected system of care. I think a challenge in implementing this system is that as a provider who operates primary care, behavioral health, and SDOH activities, our biggest challenge that we experience is effective, accurate, and timely communication between those domains. 
This is a challenge where services are internally integrated and we have the ability to communicate effectively amongst ourselves and to repair those broken communication chains if they occur, particularly around patient care. Communication is much more compounded and difficult when working across multiple systems, providers in an external fashion. So the Rio and software programs like Unitas are very good first-generation approaches to mitigating this problem of communication. Yet we all know examples where even these interoperable systems continue to be insufficient. The data and reporting linkages proposed under the waiver that will be imposed upon the HEROES as well as the SDOHN networks will take the issue of communication and thus systems linkage to version 2.0. Working through case management is also a key element in breaking down the silos and these communication challenges. A second challenge I see is working with smaller CBOs. Josh alluded to this. They are critical in the delivery system as they are often highly localized and or specialized. However, they often lack the tools such as EHRs or data gathering reporting capacity to be able to effectively interface on a systems level. The elements of the waiver for the HEROES and SDOH networks will go a long way towards addressing these needs, particularly with infrastructure dollars tied and allocated to the development of those systems. Here at Liberty, we've developed the internal capacities to measure outcomes and titrate our delivery methods and services. Building these from scratch in a dual system approach with HEROES and networks across multiple domains is an aggressive goal. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you really highlighted some of those challenges of the interoperability between different community-based organizations and the existing delivery health system. Do you think, Carl, that the approach here with, uh, you know, establishing these new health equity regional organizations and the social determinants of health networks are the right way to achieve this goal? I do, Graham. There are a number of sub-elements within the proposal that speak specifically to the issues that we as CBOs and community-based providers encounter every day and tends to or seeks to eliminate those barriers on a systems and operational perspective. Under DISRIP, the PPSs were centralized, albeit regional, and focused on primary care, acute care-led systems where primary care received the bulk of the dollars. This was not money following the person. We have learned that the SDOH issues often impact people's health conditions very, very significantly, and many of the people we serve have significant health inequities and disparities for a host of reasons. Mm -hmm. In, In the case of the HEROES, this brings together all the important players in the care and treatment of the individual and a focus on integration. Our HEROES will play an important planning role, as Josh mentioned, And the issues of attribution to behavioral health providers is one illustration of the barriers that the system previously had. And statewide data sharing are also important factors, as many of us had hoped to see this in the waiver. Mm -hmm. Uh, Graham, I can give you a quick illustration of a uh, SDOH factor that was negatively impacting a patient. We had a patient coming into our primary care clinic who regularly showed up with a chronic complaint about lung issues. We did a lot of tests, ruling out pneumonia, common cold, COVID, asthma, COPD, other issues. But the chronicity and regularity of her showing up both to the emergency department when it became acute, as well as coming into our clinic, was really driving a lot of the volume and the use and, frankly, the lack of an outcome on mitigating her health condition. As we started exploring not her health background, but her social background on SDOH issues, We found out she was living in an apartment that had significant mold in it. 
and she was using 100% bleach to mm. clean the mold weekly. And those fumes coupled with the mold and that toxicity was causing her health problems. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we didn't approach this from a health perspective. We approached it from a housing perspective. And we worked with her to get her into a clean apartment that didn't have mold. And no surprise, her health conditions stabilized and improved. That's what this initiative is attempting to do by tying all of these issues, particularly SDOH issues together with healthcare. Mm -hmm. It's a really great example of, of how this really practically applies to individuals in the community that we're serving and they're showing up in a way that uh, we need to serve them, but they, uh, the conditions may not just be clinical ones. Indeed, they're, they're much more associated with other factors about the living situation. Indeed. Josh, let's, let's shift a little bit here. Let's address the, the key payment aspect of the wa waiver. Um, as it stands today, $13.5 billion is requested through this waiver amendment over a five-year period. And about 52% of that, $7 billion, is earmarked to advance value-based payment models. Two of the models that are called out specifically are Medicaid Global Prepayment and Value-Based Payment Incentive Payment Pools. Uh, an example of this would be bundled payments. Um, Josh, maybe talk a little bit here about what's new and how do these two payment approaches fit together to achieve the overall goals the state's describing? So, so what's new is seven billion dollars, um, or you know, it's, it's actually I think six point seven, but you know, round well, we can round it to seven. Um, and ultimately, that seven billion dollars is, in my estimation, a gigantic thumb on the scale, incenting both providers and plans to shift their payment arrangements into risk-bearing value-based payment arrangements. Um, it's really important. Our DISRIP waiver had a goal of getting 80% of payments into some kind of a value-based payment methodology and 25% of payments into what in New York is called a level, level two or level three. Level two means the provider bears some financial risk for bad outcomes. Level three is a sort of a capitated model. Um, DISRIP, was very successful at getting the low-hanging fruit. Um, some very basic types of contracts got moved into value-based payments. If you look at, for example, the HARP plan, where the more complex patients are, very little of those dollars were able to move into value-based payments. The incentives under DISRIP were not aligned. Um, and I always say you got to get the incentives for all of the P's lined up. You need the payers, the plans, the providers, and the people. If you get everybody's incentives lined up, you can really get the system to move in a meaningful um, and fundamental way. So this $7 billion is essentially a, f a pool of, of money that the state is going to use to, to move the system away from the fee-for-service model towards a more of a, a provider risk-bearing model. Um, you mentioned that there are two different kinds of them. And frankly, I think this was very smart designed by our, our friends in Albany. The value-based payment incentive payment pools are essentially a push from the back, a, a, an incentive for all of those providers who have either not gotten into value-based payments or have sort of dipped their toe into the value-based payment pool to really move over. And, and the model there is that the money either flows through an MCO or directly from the state to a network of providers. And I think the example Carl just used is a, a perfect example. You know, a network of providers who have access to primary care, behavioral health care, housing supports, social services can together address the needs of the woman that Carl was just referencing and generate substantial savings for the healthcare delivery system. In this, you know, so this pool of money incents those providers, you know, and, uh, you know, that was in Syracuse, 
groups of providers in Syracuse to come together to create the networks that enable them to take that level two, level three risk, manage that risk effectively. And, and there's a sort of a a little bit of a stop loss there, right? Because the state has dumped a little bit of extra money on, it changes the risk calculus for the providers. It makes it a much less risky, much higher reward proposition for them. The global payment model, in my mind, is the pull from the front, right? Those funds are for the high-performing systems, the big, sophisticated healthcare delivery systems. We have a lot of them here in New York that have really moved but that haven't moved all the way towards sort of those capitated models. And that's really is the state's goal is to get everybody in the Medicaid system into those capitated models where the risk can really be managed at the provider level. Those funds all flow through the MCOs, but they flow to a provider, right? A large healthcare delivery system, which may have some downstream providers that it's paying out, but doesn't necessarily, right? Whereas the, the VBPIP, the value-based payment incentive payment pools, excuse me, um, flow to networks of providers that have really come together, groups of primary care, behavioral health care, social services, as well as hospital, you know, hospital providers that have come together to really effectively manage the care of those populations. And ultimately, that pool of money, if it survives, uh, you know, the federal negotiation, will, I think, be a very effective way of driving New York state systems towards that more value-based environment that policymakers have recognized as simply a better way to pay for healthcare. Again, very helpful uh, explanation of the goals around the payment side there, Josh. Appreciate that. Um, before we move on to the next area of focus, I just want to highlight something that's in this uh, amendment proposal that we're not going to go to great depth around. Uh, but New York State here is seeking about $745 million for what they're calling in-reach services to provide a set of targeted services to Medicaid uh, beneficiaries who are incarcerated. And it's really looking to kind of plan 30 days prior to their release, giving them various different supports in terms of care management, discharge planning, clinical consultation, connecting them with peer services or medication management uh, to really prepare them for their discharge from a facility environment. It's an important element of the first goal of the waiver, and uh, I think we could dedicate a whole podcast to that part of it, so I don't want to ignore that this important element is there. But given our time today, let's move on to goal number two around transitional housing strategy. Carl, maybe you could speak here about uh, some of the clinical characteristics of this population, the Medicaid population, who need some of these housing support services. You referenced it a little bit in the example you gave, but I'm sure there's more to it. Before I do that, though, Graham, I want to go back to a point that Josh made around systems integration. And we haven't talked about the previously established BHCCs that the Office of Mental Health rolled out. And I think those are an excellent example of how they are starting to create formative linkages with the primary care delivery system and aggregating uh, behavioral health providers, as well as uh, many of us who are SDOH providers. So locally here, our BHCC is doing two things. We're looking at a regional approach as opposed to just the geography or region that we were established with. So we're looking at partnering and or merging with other BHCCs to aggregate covered lives to manage risk under uh, the elements that you both spoke about on bundle payments and level of EBP level payments. The second thing that we're doing is we're linking with other IPAs, specifically the FQHC IPAs, on the integration between their primary care delivery system and the BHCC uh, behavioral health delivery system. 
there's not a lot of typically historically there's not a lot of behavioral health provided within fqhcs and that linkage together is becoming an important piece of the thinking on the uh, evolving systems integration activity i thought that's important to note but going to your specific question uh, we've added uh, as a provider we've added a number of residential opportunities under the MRT bed expansion that New York State previously piloted before DISRIP and a little bit during DISRIP as well. Beyond the clinical needs of mental health or substance abuse or both in the Medicaid patient population that we see, the need I see is for a continuum of residential options that go from crisis respite to residential to step down to independent living, attentive to clinical need and supportive of maintaining that person in the community as Josh referenced. Affordability and quality of housing stock is critical, and each locale has its unique set of challenges. In New York City, it's affordability. In upstate communities, it's quality and availability. But a common characteristic of our patients that we see are chronic conditions. Many of our patients are also socioeconomically challenged. Providing linkages to supportive services and safe and affordable housing stock is actually critical. This administration, fortunately, understands this and has proposed development of expanded housing options outside of the waiver, such as expanded ESHI funding and supportive housing beds, which will address many of these issues of availability, access, and quality. The graphic we have that's contained in the waiver, we can see that there's a multiplicity of comorbidities and services that are needed, but it seems to me that with respect to supportive housing, service providers will still be to some extent siloed. IDD providers, for example, which are covered under this waiver, are rarely behavioral health providers, and the converse is often true. So the nature of the delivery system relative to housing based upon the clinical need, developmental, acute, chronic, and mental health or substance abuse, have very, very different drivers of how you address that housing need. And I'm not sure that everybody is experienced enough to be able to do that in an integrated fashion. Mm -hmm. um, so Josh, uh, how's the state seeking to invest in transitional housing then through this proposal? Yeah, the, the they're doing, I think, an artful job. Um, it is very difficult to use Medicaid dollars to pay for housing. Um, when the Medicaid system was established in the 1960s, policymakers recognized that if they started paying for housing, the, the bill could get very large very fast. Um, so what the state is doing is, you know, sort of nibbling around the edges of housing. Um, they're making sort of targeted investments in housing supports, right? First month's rent, last month's rent, security deposit, utility bills, um, you know, uh, legal support, things that help people avoid losing their housing or get into housing who otherwise, you know, that sort of first month, last month security, uh, you know, that was music to my ears when I, uh, that was a bad analogy that I was very excited when I saw that that in the waiver uh, proposal, because so often, you know, for example, the woman Carl referenced earlier, moving her into a new apartment requires thousands of dollars cash up front that, that most folks on Medicaid just don't have access to. The heroes, I think, are also being used to develop this sort of inventory of transitional housing that can be used to drive the housing development. There are also some transitional housing beds, medical respite beds, for example, step-down beds to get people out of hospitals or step-up beds to keep people from going into hospitals. All of those things, I think, are going to work together to reduce the number of homeless people, reduce the number of Medicaid recipients um, who are either living in 
substandard housing or unstable housing or homeless shelters. Um, and you know, I have I have often said, if you ever meet a healthy homeless person, I'd like to know about it. It is extremely yeah. difficult to maintain your health when you're living on the street. Um, yeah. And so we as a community have begun to figure out that it's actually less expensive for us to provide people with safe and dignified housing than it is to deal with the medical implications of leaving them on the streets. Yeah. Um, you know, Carl, let's segue to you here. The state's had some success in, in support of in-transitional housing programs for the Medicaid population before. Uh, what's your experience with that? Yes, the Medicaid redesign team's program evaluation results showed cost savings of about $45,000 for homeless individuals and just over $90,000 for transition individuals in addition to better health outcomes. What's new here is the Enhanced Transitional Housing Initiative, which will create collaboration between MCOs, BBP contractors, and SDOH networks, and CBOs that offer and navigate housing options. Those services are going to include, as you mentioned earlier, or referred to some of them, medical respite, transitional services, tenancy supports, referral and coordination. However, the state has made a large investment in standing up regional mobile crisis capacity and crisis respite. So with respect to its latest initiatives on intensive and supportive 24-hour crisis programs, it's not quite clear yet on how those will link into this emerging system of care. Thank you, Carl. That's really great information about what the state has been doing in the transitional housing area so far. With that, we are out of time for today. I would love to thank my guests, Josh Rubin and Carl Coyle, for joining me. We will pick up this conversation next time and continue to explore some of the opportunities and challenges ahead with regard to New York State's 1115 Medicaid waiver application. Thank you for joining me today. It's Graham Brown with NextGen Healthcare. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Never miss an episode by subscribing at nextgen.com slash podcast. To see a list of products and services tailored for ambulatory care practices, visit nextgen.com.